As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. This special feature of the Life After God podcast explores stories of diverse people who have left the faith and religion they grew up with. In each episode, individuals will share in their own words how and why their worldview changed, the gains and losses associated with their religious and spiritual transition, the lessons they've learned in the process, and what their life is like now. To learn more about The X-Files and the Life After God podcast, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Special thanks to Ian Gordon for the use of the theme music, The Truth Is Out There. If you would like to consider sharing your story in a future episode of The X-Files, please send a short email to ryan at lifeaftergod.org. As a Christian, I mean, I read my Bible, you know, front to back every single year. I had Bible reading plans. I had, you know, accountability partners, pastor groups, prayer groups. And you just don't see some of these things. You know, like when you're reading through Leviticus and you're like, wait, why do menstruating women need to leave town? Why are they un- unclean? And does, do dads really have to kill their kids? Today on The X-Files, I speak to Nathan Cartel. Nathan lives with his wife and five children in Amherst, Massachusetts. He was a pastor for eight years and then lost his faith while in seminary. Today, after working in several highly esteemed restaurants in Western Massachusetts, Nathan is a chef working in his own business called Haven Foods that he describes as paleo fine dining delivered to your door. I first encountered Nathan online shortly after the conclusion of my year without God. He and I went through our deconversion experiences around the same time. As with all such stories, you'll be able to detect common themes, but Nathan's story is unlike any I've heard in recent days. As his doubts crept in, he stepped deeper into conservative and authoritarian forms of Christianity. For a time, he left behind liberal values that he embraced in university, like feminism, in exchange for the simplistic answers offered by Reformed Christianity. His last move before he left Christianity for good was to join with the National Church Planting Network, Acts 29, then led by Mark Driscoll. We'll come back to Mark Driscoll in a moment, but first, I began by asking Nathan about his earliest religious memories. He walks us through those early days all the way to his adult life as a pastor in very short order. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in right south of Boston uh, in Braintree, which if you remember your American history class is where John Adams and John Quincy Adams came from. Right. Um, so, you know, super Irish, Catholic, mostly lapsed Catholics. Uh, my mom 
was an atheist and I started smoking at 14. And so she sent me to an American Baptist camp because I wouldn't be able to smoke, which <laughs> sending teenagers into the woods, <laughs> that's all we did. Um, and for four years, had a really great experience, made some friends, kept going back. Um, for four years, was really wrestled intellectually by what I call adults into deciding that, all right, uh, atheism is wrong. You know, and again, this is a 14, 15, 16-year-old. I'm kind of arrogant to think humans are the you know, epitome of what the universe can create. Maybe there's a God. And then you know, eventually became a Christian, um, went to UMass, studied physics, math, and political science, was published as an undergrad, kind of backslid at that point. Um, you know, as all college students started drinking, doing the women thing, and then went to detox for cocaine abuse, because when you finish your undergrad with graduate level classes and you're an overachiever, cocaine is a hell of a drug. Uh, <laughs> to keep you, I guess to keep you awake at night to finish your work? Yeah, I mean, I read uh, The Metaphysical Club, which is a, a brilliant book. It was like 500 pages in one night and got a higher grade on my paper than the grad students. Um, thanks to cocaine. Not that I'm saying anyone should do cocaine. It's a bad idea. So got, got myself into detox, came out and was like, I need to get right with Jesus again. So started attending this church plant uh, in town, Southern Baptist Church Plant. Really, you know, kind of climbed through their ranks uh, after six months, was helping lead a community group and then got married. Me and my wife started a house church and that multiplied multiple times. And after three years, um, we had this vision to plant churches and change pagan New England into this, you know, city on a hill like the Puritans always wanted. Um, started a church called Vita Nova in 2008 and grew it from eight people in my living room. I think our max service was 153 people, you know, in Western Mass, lots of baptisms, you know, eight to ten a semester, just kind of churning through college students, became really good at apologetics, hmm. um, kind of using my physics background to convince people that Christianity was true. At this point, Nathan decided, with the background in physics and political science, perhaps he should have some formal theological training. So he went to seminary. Naturally, he picked a seminary that aligned with his views, but the education he'd received in his undergraduate days didn't just go away. After starting the church plant, I was like, I should probably go to seminary. Um, and Southern, which is, you know, Al Mohler and super conservative, right. super far right, had an extension center out in Boston. So I would drive out there on weekends. I'd stay overnight at their extension program. They'd fly the professors up. Uh, and that's really where my doubts started to begin to happen. Uh, I should say at the same time, I became more and more conservative. So initially, when I came back to the church, I was sort of a feminist and women should have roles in leadership. And um, my wife actually started to convince me at the time that complementarianism was correct and started reading Driscoll. Um, Driscoll. Mark, Mark Driscoll, Acts 29 of for me, I guess at this point, not just fame, but infamy. Um, John Piper. So started getting really sucked into reformed theology. I need to pause here because Nathan just dropped a ton of terms and names. Complementarianism, Mark Driscoll, John Piper, Reformed Theology. If you've not been a part of the evangelical debates of the past decade, you're likely thinking, who are these people and what the heck is complementarianism? So briefly, Reformed Theology or Calvinism is a set of teachings loosely based in the teachings of the Protestant reformer John Calvin. Modern Reformed theology teaches, among other things, that God is sovereign, all-powerful, and can do as he pleases. This means that God ultimately decides who is saved and who is lost. It has nothing to do with human choice. 
John Piper is a Reformed Baptist preacher from this tradition who's written dozens of books. He's revered by people in his camp and equally reviled by those outside. This modern expression of Calvinism is, as you might imagine, toxically authoritarian. God is the ultimate authority, of course, but on earth, men, as opposed to women, are God's out-front leaders, carrying out God's will. This is where complementarianism comes in. Complementarians believe that God created men and women equal in principle, but in practice, they have different, separate, but complementary roles to play. So men, according to the Bible, are to be the head of the household, and women are to be homemakers. Mark Driscoll, for example, taught that men are naturally aggressive and forceful, and women are naturally nurturing, so men should be the income earners, and women should be home-raising children. If this seems surprisingly similar to the post-war 1950s nuclear family in America, that's because it is, only with the seal of God placed over it. You'll hear Nathan talk in a minute about how this theologically inscribed sexism plays out in real life. Acts 29, that Nathan refers to, is a church-planting network founded by Mark Driscoll in 1998. He was also the founding pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. All the hyper-masculine, authoritarian teaching, along with some serious ethical failings, finally caught up with Mark, and he was forced to resign his position at Mars Hill and Acts 29 in 2014. So that's the background. Um, when Vita Nova started, we became part of Acts 29. We were the fourth Acts 29 church in the Northeast. Um, you know, and kind of looked at that as like the big boy, cool kids club of church planting. And if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Um, then started going to seminary. And in seminary, during my evangelism class, the professor showed a video that was supposedly to disprove evolution. And, you know, the classic evangelical uh, example is the bombardier beetle because it shoots out this explosion from its ass, essentially. And, you know, th these people, I, I consider them intelligent. He's going to show this video and I was like, professor, this isn't the video you want. This is actually going to demonstrate how evolution could produce the bombardier beetle. And uh, he didn't believe me. He shows the video. You know, this video shows how the bombardier beetle could have evolved. And uh, then he shows the video he wanted to. And at the end of it, he says, um, you know, that seemed like a lot of steps to get there. And it seems to me it's simpler that God just did it. And the whole class burst out laughing. I'm the only person in the class who believes in evolution. And it's like, I'm surrounded by morons. Like, they didn't even watch the video. And that was really my first crisis of faith. Uh, you know, I pulled back because you listen to there are Christian apologists who are evolutionists to an extent. Um, you know, Teller and Reasons for God kind of says it's okay. Right. And, you know, you read Lewis and these other really intelligent people, and you're like, okay, okay, okay. Like, the professor is a creationist, young earth creationist. All my professors were young earth creationists. I don't have to be. They're allowing me that freedom. They say we can disagree here. Um, so kept going. And then at some point, you know, deconversion is really foggy. Um, at some point, three years ago, I just started just buckling under the pressure and being like, this is not true. Um, Are started, you still in seminary at that point or you had come was, out? Okay. I was still in seminary. I never finished my degree. Okay. I had like one more semester left and, you know, after you become an atheist, you're like, well, I don't care about a master's of church planting anymore. Right. Um, you know, I was in dialogue with some of my professors, some of my mentors, and just the answers they were giving me to the questions didn't add up. And so said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to start reading the apologists for atheism or why Christianity is false and, and started digging in. I was like, these guys have better answers. Hmm. You know, Hitchens has better answers than William Lane Craig. And uh, 
you know, but still was like, but I had these experiences, you know, I, I had cast out demons in Jesus' name. I had seen miracles, quote unquote. I've heard the voice of God. Jesus talked to me, talked to my wife. Um, and eventually it just kind of all came crumbling down. I was drinking like an alcoholic, um, still preaching. And the funny thing is I would be, you know, somewhat an atheist on Tuesday and then I have to do sermon prep and I'd have wow. to counsel people and counseling girls whose dads raped them multiple times and homeless people and drug addicts and, you know, was counseling. We actually put one of my best friends under church discipline for drug addiction and he ended up overdosing. So I'm doing his funeral and counseling his mother. And yeah. um, Wow. Yeah. My, my second child's fourth word was Josh. It was dad, mom. Yes. And then Josh. And then I had to bury him. Um, Which I mean, you know, it's life, but being the one to tell the church, like, you can't call Josh anymore. He's under discipline. He's excommunicated. Like, you're like, yeah, I probably had a hand in his overdosing because when you lose all your friends, what do you have left? Nothing. Um, yeah. 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 You're, you're a drug dealer. Um, wow. Yeah. That's got to be tough to bear that kind of uh, feeling partly responsible. Right. So it was like drinking two bottles of wine a night, hiding it from my wife, hiding it from my congregation. Um, saying like, well, I'm in control because it's only two bottles and it's Whole Foods wine, so the alcohol percentage is less. And, you know, and I was doing that because I had this inner turmoil of, I think I'm an atheist, this isn't making sense, but Sundays I'm preaching and it feels right, and people's lives are actually transforming, and what's going on? And finally one night, um, I was actually watching the Bill Nye debate with oh, wow. my atheist friend. We had been talking back and forth. We were, we were actually going to write a book because we were very respectful to each other and respectful of each other's worldview. Uh, he's a behavioral scientist down in New Jersey. So I was like, let's watch this together. Like, I don't believe in young earth creationism, but at least give us something to start our book with. And about halfway through the video, we're, we're talking back and forth. I'm just like, I, I just became an atheist. Hmm. Was it something that was said during the debate that kind of clicked? It must have been, you know, sort of just listening to Bill Nye and remembering my physics roots and science and listening to this Christian apologist trying to argue for young earth creationism, something just snapped. And I was right. like, yeah, I, I just, I finally admitted I don't believe anymore. And my friend was like, don't tell anyone. Um, you have to look at this like a divorce more than quitting a job. You need to keep this secret. You're going to lose your livelihood. You're going to be homeless. Like you need to come up with an escape plan. So I took that advice for about three days and, you know, I'm counseling people and I'm praying and praying with my wife and praying with my kids and just get absolutely obliterated one night with alcohol and uh, wake her up. She's like, what? And uh, I was like, I- I- I'm an atheist. Like, I-, I can't do this anymore. I've been living this secret life, been struggling with it. And she- she's still an evangelical at the time. And she's like, you have to tell the elders or I will. Wow. And so really, and we've worked through that in our marriage a little bit, still working on it. Um, but really forced me to help myself to my entire congregation. So I email the elders. Um, I'm promptly, I quit Slash was fired. It's, you know, unclear. Who got there first? Who broke up with who? Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was that. And, you know, I had a blog going. Um, my blog was, when I was a pastor, it would get about 50 to 100 hits a day. Mm-hmm. Had, and then as I started deconverting, oh, and I didn't come out of my blog as atheist quite as quickly as I did to my wife because I pulled back and my Acts 29 mentor called me. He's like, are you sure you're an atheist? Maybe you're just a Lewis guy and not reformed. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, trying to figure that out. And uh, my blog blew up. It went to like 15,000 hits a day. Right. 
Um, but with that also came, you know, the death threats and the text messages telling of people telling me that they're praying for my destruction because it would be better for my kids to not have a dad than to have a dad who's leading them into hell. And wow. Yeah, it was it was a, a crazy yes, time. I love you. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, and I, there, there was even some there that it wasn't even I love you. It was like, you're a terrible human being. I hope you rot in hell. Peace out. Like, all right, thank you, anonymous internet blogger who somehow found my phone number. Whoa. Uh, yeah, so we shut down the blog. <laughs> Got super, super secure on my Facebook and um, kind of had to redo my, my philosophy of social media. Because, you know, as an evangelical pastor, I'm like, everybody's welcome to my page. I'm not afraid if I get martyred, you know. That'd by be a good some- thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was like, nope. <laughs> Um, getting texts from people you don't know from the South telling you that they want you to die is kind of intimidating. These are some deep and seriously traumatic experiences, but it didn't stop there. As I mentioned before, Nathan has a family, a fairly large family, five kids. So many deconversion stories go off the rails at precisely this point. Marriage is challenging enough. How do two people manage to grow and develop as human beings over the course of many years but do so in a way that they still remain as interested and committed to the other person as they were at the beginning. The best marriages remain a dance, two people learning and growing together as they navigate victory and defeat, for better, for worse. To make matters worse, the toxically masculine and authoritarian brand of Christianity that Nathan and his family was involved with made the family part of this transition even worse. I became... In, in hindsight, probably intellectually abusive. Um, you know, I had some friends who deconverted, joined the clergy project, was reading stats on mixed marriages and how, especially in the situation of two very conservative evangelicals or, or whatever the strain of theology is, the more conservative one, one deconverts, it's just bad. Um, and so I was like, I need to deconvert her. And also I loved her. And I was like, no, you need to see like what I see now. And so every night I'd send her emails you know, so she'd wake up with an inbox of 15, 20 emails. Like, what do you make of this contradiction? How do you deal with the fact that, you know, God told Moses to kill all the babies? Like, is this the loving Jesus you think? And um, really forced her to deconvert. I remember this one fight. That's Nathan's wife, Sarah. Uh, we had gone to church and come home, and he was very upset that we had gone to church. Um, and this was after we had left the church where he was at, which, you know, um, understandably was very painful when we went there. Uh, so we came home from church and we just started kind of fighting about the Christianity thing. And I just remember him yelling at me that he would rather that I was taking the kids out on the street and shooting us all up with heroin than um, going to church because he believed it was equally, if not actually more detrimental for me to be teaching them about God. She's far more supernatural than I am. I'm, I'm comfortable saying I'm a full humanist, naturalist, atheist. I don't think there's anything supernatural. I think if we don't have an explanation yet, it could come. Um, she, she calls herself a Sarahist at this point. Hmm. What's so, that mean? Uh, I mean, she can believe whatever the hell she wants, and that's okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Her name is Sarah. He'll often call me a Sarahist. And I may make up what I believe a little bit. And I may think that everybody kind of makes up what they believe a little bit. (laughs) 
um, in that we, you know, we fit what we need to fit um, for our sanity or whatever other reasons. She wants to believe there's a heaven and she gets to be happy and, and see everyone after she dies. And I was like, you know what? That, that's not harmful. Um, yeah. Yeah. It has been a crazy ride. I mean, I have five kids. Three of them are old enough to remember church and, and how we used to love Jesus. And that was one of the, the things I didn't expect uh, with deconversion is my six-year-old asking me, if you stopped loving Jesus, are you going to stop loving me someday? Like, could you just choose to stop loving me? Wow. Um, and he's like, holy crap, like you are internalizing this in a way that I couldn't have foreseen. I'm trying to explain to her, like, no, I'm not going to stop loving you because you're right here and you're real. And he's not. But, you know, for a six-year-old, when you're telling them Jesus is real, Jesus is real. I'm frequently asked whether I want my kids to be atheists like I am. And so I asked Nathan that question about his kids. Uh, I want them to be atheists insofar as that I think I'm right. But, um, you know, also we've, since the deconversion, we've been very clear with them that we're going to love them regardless of what they choose. And what we want for them to do is ask questions and seek their own answers and to look at multiple sources and decide what they believe, not because someone tells them, um, but because they've done their, their research. So, I, I mean, I hope they become atheists, but, you know, crazier stuff has happened. For people who were employed by churches and other religious institutions, the transition out can be especially harrowing. People who follow their convictions, even when it means a loss of income, face the additional challenge of navigating unemployment and retooling themselves for a new career. Nathan and his family faced extremely difficult times, but he and Sarah did what had to be done, took jobs usually filled by high school and college students, and started over at the bottom of the ladder. Soon, Nathan's passion for cooking and Sarah's skill at leadership and administration led them both to new places. Then I got a job dishwashing. Um, for six months, I was unemployed. My wife was a stay-at-home mom before that, and we had to cash in our 401k, um, went through savings. I had some other pe- friends who deconverted who sent me money to make it through, but the church gave me a $1,000 severance package, said, we love you, we're praying for you, we hope your kids don't starve, get the hell out. $1,000. A thousand dollars. That's enough for groceries for what, a month and a half or something? Well, actually my family has celiac, so we can't do any wheat or grains of any kind. Oh, wow. So, it, I mean, our, our food budget is about $2,000 a month. Wow. So yeah. Yeah. So two weeks of food, get on your way. Um, you know, but we love you and we're praying for you. And, and, uh, so yeah, after six months of having no job and being like, look, we're going to be homeless next month. I had to tell my wife, like, you need to get a job. This is in the middle of me sort of trying to deconvert her in a less than not hostile way. Um, and so that, that was a whole thing because her dream was to stay at home. And, you know, I had bought this conservative BS of dads are providers and moms are caregivers. And, you know, so she got a job waiting tables and doing nannying. And she was actually working three jobs at a time. And I was a stay-at-home dad for a while. I was like, oh, man, like evangelicals have this all wrong. Being a stay-at-home dad is the bomb. Like, you know, like, yeah, I have to clean the house, but I get to see my kids and, and do all this really neat stuff. Um, but, you know, we still needed more money. So Sarah got me a job dishwashing at uh, the restaurant she worked at. And after one shift, it was supposed to just be like odd times. Like, you know, someone called in and called me in. It would be $50. And we're like, all right, 50 bucks, whenever is better than not. Um, after, after my first, you know, quote unquote shift, they were like, um, 
we want you to be our second in charge line cook. And about a month later, I was promoted to sous chef. I have some natural cooking talent, um, you know, very good at multitasking and, and doing things like that. Worked there for like six months and was then poached by what I consider the best restaurant in Western Massachusetts, um, 30 Boltwood. I worked at the Lord Jeff Inn, which was rated the fourth most romantic inn in the country last year by Town & Country when I was working there. Mm. Um, got to feed some, you know, some superstar celebrities. From there, Nate branched out and started my own company. And, uh, you know, we started off with three clients a week. We do paleo fine dining delivered to your door. So uh, we have a website and people go on and they order food. We cook it all. We vacuum seal it. We box it. We give you ingredients and um, reheat instructions, which is essentially put these vacuum sealed bags in boiling water for two minutes, take it out. Everything's plated. You're good to go. Uh, started off with three clients, and now we're at like 35. I just hired a first, my first full-time staff member. I'm looking for a part-time staff member. We're looking at expanding out of our current kitchen to a bigger space. Wow. Yeah, and, and my wife moved into – she's a manager at the Lord Jeff. Um, so she started off there just as the daytime bartender, um, just so our schedules weren't the same. Because when we worked at the same restaurant where she got me the dishwashing job, it was you know Tuesday through Saturday through Sunday – 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. for both of us, which is, was crazy for babysitting. So she went over to the Lord Jeff and found that they needed daytime bartenders and was like, this would be great because you can babysit in the daytime, I can babysit at night. And you know, just worked up the ranks because she's a badass and a hard worker. So together they're navigating these very choppy waters. Nathan doesn't believe his former Christian faith makes logical sense anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't comport with science. And he's more or less forcing his new beliefs on his wife Meanwhile, they're desperately trying to uh, meet their financial obligations, and it forces them both to reevaluate what they believe about the roles of men and women in the world. So I really wanted to know more about Acts 29 and how Nathan was processing his involvement with that network and the way his thinking was changing as, uh, as he moved into this new chapter of his life. Yeah, so Acts 29 is a church planning network, um, different from a denomination only in name. Um, you know, they, if I can remember that they had four distinctive spirit led, charismatic, complementarian, and reformed. So you had to fit all four of those. Wow. So that, so they're one of their four pillars is like women have a specific role in the world. Yeah. Of all the things yeah. they could have picked. Yeah. In, you know, there were guys who were church planting, um, like myself and we live in a, a very expensive area, even though it's Western Massachusetts, we have five colleges. So you know, there's 60,000 college students looking for housing. Yeah. Um, you know, so rents around here, like a four-bedroom, brand-new condo, they just listed for $3,600 a month. Um, so it's, it's not cheap. Wow, um, that's a lot. It is a lot. I mean, it's Boston prices. And if you get out of Amherst itself, everything drops. But we have, you know, a metro system. You know, we have buses. We have 50,000 college kids, which are a blessing and a curse, um, depending on which night of the week it is. And how deep your kids are asleep. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, you know, as guys were trying to fundraise and are joining Acts 29 and certain leaders would find out that their wife was also working to help make it work, they'd get yelled at. Um, and they'd be like, you, you're not living up to the Bible standard. Like, what you need to do is get a part-time job or fundraise better or maybe reconsider church planting because if God really called you to be a church planner, he's going to provide the funds. So, like... Acts 29 pastors' wives do not work. Wow. Uh, I mean, now, th that's not true because I'm sure you know being a pastor's wife is a lot of work. Right. Yes, that's uh, true. 
They don't work for income but outside they, the home. Yeah, they don't get income. So the pastor gets the income and the wife has to work and be there at the church and smile and look pretty and nod and have babies and make sure that the house is clean for random hospitality and that they're meeting with the women and doing marriage counseling, but they can, they don't have jobs. Now I've been out of it for two years. Maybe they've loosened up a little bit. Um, when I was there, Mark Driscoll was the president and kind of had a tight, firm grip on lots of things. And from what I hear from some of my Acts 29 friends who I'm, who stayed friends with me through the deconversion process, um, it's changed a little bit. How do you explain secular young people being drawn to fundamentalist theology. I mean, for all practical purposes, you were a secular young person from a secular university, and Mark Driscoll managed to build a very large church in Seattle, Washington, one of the most secular cities in the country, and grow that network, Acts 29, uh, pretty significantly around the country. How How do you account for these secular young adults latching on to reformed um, fundamentalist teachings uh, like the ones you were just referring to uh, about the role of women. Uh, How do you make sense of that? As I've kind of pondered myself, you know, being in this area and seeing the same thing, you know, because we're very much like Seattle demographic, just a lot smaller, um, is... You know, especially 90s, early 2000s, there's a lot of turmoil in the world. Mm. There's a lot of unknowns. I mean, even today. Um, But it's sort of the first time where everyone's getting different news sources and, you know, the Internet's now a thing and cell phones are a thing. So you have this whole interconnected lifestyle. Um, And so the world seems a lot more random and chaotic because you just didn't know about, you know, earthquakes in India, um, except when the nightly news told you before that. And so, so there's something comforting about Reformed theology that says, like, God's in control, he's sovereign, he knows all this is going to take place, he's your dad, he brought you here, he's going to make sure you get safe, you know, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor, you know, principalities or whatever are going to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I think there's a comfort and a stability there that um, my generation was looking for. People like you got into this because you really wanted to make the world or the life after this world, uh, the best it could be and, and save people and, and help them live the, the, their best life, what, what they were made to be. Um, so, I mean, do you, my, my sense is that people are more or less sincere. In fact, I, I guess I kind of have this as a, uh, sort of a, an approach to the world that I just take. I trust that people are being sincere unless they demonstrate to me that they're not being so I tend to get people the benefit of the doubt. And, and in that, you know, I would say, you know, these ministers who come up in this system, like you say, it appeals to them for a certain set of reasons, perhaps comfort and security and um, all of that. And then, you know, at some point it starts to not make sense, but you're in so far and you're trying to be sincere about it. I mean, does that does that accurately reflect sort of your a journey as well as those that you understand. I mean, people are being honest as best they can at some point, right? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, even when I was struggling, I was emailing some of my seminary professors and, uh, you know, they were like, don't tell anyone at the church, don't tell your wife, which was a whole thing when I actually finally told everyone because they were like, we didn't know you were even struggling with this. And I was like, well, my mentors told me not to tell. And their reasoning was everyone has a crisis of faith. Everyone has doubts. The Holy Spirit will get you through. You know, you don't want to you know, mislead others because it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck. Oh man, so that verse just, is so haunting. 
Yeah. So, so they're like, talk with us. We've walked other seminary students through this. We will get you through it. Um, and then didn't. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, up until the day I quit, I was sincere. You know, I, I, I was writing poetry. My wife thought I was suicidal, which may or may not have been true. Um, you know, d- drinking to mask the, the person who I was versus the person who I wanted to be. But I was sure that Jesus was going to come through. I was like, all right, he's silent now. I'm in a dry place. I'm in a desert. Um, you know, begging the Holy Spirit to change my heart, asking God, like, where are you? Why aren't you answering? I can't do this without you. Like, I've, I've never been able to do this on my own strength. Um, you know, and then painful. getting up. Yeah, and getting up Sunday and, and honestly preaching. I mean, up until my last sermon, I believed what I was saying while I was saying it. Now, at 8 p.m. on a Sunday evening, if that was true, <clears throat> varied by the week. But I, I can honestly say I never preached a sermon where I wasn't fully believing that the gospel could save people listening in those pews if they made a decision right there. and was probably preaching to myself more than anyone else. Um, I know that feeling, yeah. Yeah, and was, I mean, getting compliments, people were like, these are the best sermons you've done, like, you're hitting my heart. And I'm like, yeah, well, I wish it would hit mine. Mm. Um, you know, and Logos Bible, Bible software didn't help as you start getting into the Hebrew and the Greek, and you're like, this isn't actually what that verse says, but I can't really preach what the verse says because no one, you know? Right. Uh, and so, like, the whole world's crumbling around. But, yeah, and the guys who I've talked to... Um, who were struggling and some have left the faith and others have just become super liberal. One of my friends actually became Catholic, even though he told the Catholic priest, I don't believe in the Virgin Mary and praying to her. And I don't believe in this and this and this. And the priest was like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Cause right. I think they're, he they, probably they, doesn't believe they, it. Either. They're dying too. You know, um, you know, they, they're all honest as far as I can tell, they weren't trying to dupe their congregation or get rich planting churches. They wanted to save people and save souls and restore right. families and, then started having the same questions that I know a lot of people on your podcast have had. Wait a minute. How does this make sense? Like, I'm seeing yeah. this. Like, and, you know, what do you do? I mean, when, you know, looking back, I wouldn't have told my wife. Uh, if I had to do de- deconversion all over, I would have followed my friend's advice. I would have gotten another job and just told people I just got burned out with ministry. And slowly over the next decade, tried to pull my wife towards progressive Christianity and then out because, you know, it wasn't worth the death threats, the, you know, spam emails, the, you know, having prayer circles in my house when I come home and verses all over the walls and, you know, fights with my wife and like, and, and losing my, you know, losing my job and not having money and like really thinking my family's going to starve to death. And these Christians who called me family, whose babies I delivered, whose marriages I watched over, whose funerals I, I looked at are now you know, telling people I'm a false teacher, I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, I'm apostate, I'm, I'm worse than a non-believer because I've lost my salvation and can never get it back. Um, and telling my kids that and my kids being like, are you going to stop loving us? Are you, you know, where's our food coming from? And being like, I have no idea. And they're like, well, call the church. And it's like, well, the church just told me to go fuck myself. Right. Um, oh, man. You know, like, it, it's so, so I, painful. Yeah, I don't think those you know, those guys, they were sincere and now they're stuck. We had so many friends within the church and they really wanted to surround me and support me in really great ways. But a lot of times it overlapped into hurting him. And one night we had, you know, ladies come over and pray and they put these verses up everywhere. And it, I mean, now I can see how it literally broke his heart. But at the time he just, like flew into rage and was just so angry and so hurt. And 
I couldn't see why I didn't understand that Christianity had caused him pain or why it would cause him pain. Um, and the God that, you know, I knew and had experienced was so different than the God that he was talking about. Toward the end of our conversation, I remembered that Nathan had once told me that while he was still a pastor, toward the final days, he had heard about my Year Without God blog and read some of it. Several of his members had also heard about Year Without God, and Nathan even preached against what I was doing and told his members to be careful of it. What did you tell them? This is stupid. He needs to push in. <laughs> like This isn't how you get through doubt. Um, and some people in my congregation had heard about him. Like, no, you have to... You have to push into your doubts, like Keller says, and doubt your doubts, you know? And, right. and, and so, yeah, I had, had definitely heard and was funnily going through the same thing, but not open about it and telling other people, like, no, like, this is wrong. You know, he's clearly was never a Christian. <laughs> Pressing into your doubts actually is good advice. Um, it's just a little bit dangerous advice if the goal is to sort of continue and maintain an institution like the church or or help people seek truth and i really found that one of the things that my denomination said what you know emphasized over and over again is that we're about truth we want to find truth and jesus christ is the way the truth and the life and so it was really couched in this language of truth and i i always tell people one thing that hasn't changed for me over the last three years is my passion to know the truth um over the last 10 years, I had become a lot more humble about how much truth is available to us to be known. Um, so I, I certainly don't think that I now as an atheist have a much better grasp of the truth than I did before. I just think that when you're open to seeking the truth, um, it can lead you unexpected places. And the question becomes, are you willing to go there? Uh, or is a predetermined set of answers uh, the thing that is sort of the controlling uh, variable. You know, when I said it, and I think when Tim Keller says push into your doubts, he doesn't mean actually push into them. He means, uh, you know, read as much Christian apologetics as you can to assure yourself that, you know, the answer that is what whatever brand or denomination you have says is the actual historical Christianity's answer is true. So he doesn't mean go read Hitchens, go read... Um, you know, Carl Sagan, go read Feynman. He, he doesn't mean that. And, and I certainly didn't mean that when I was talking to people. I meant, go read Reasons for God and come out, you know, with Tim Keller showing you that your doubt is foolish and it's okay. Or, you know, what, what Keller says all the time is doubt your doubts. Um, right. You know, which is like, all right, so you have a doubt that the Bible isn't divinely inspired. And you're like, oh, I should doubt that I'm doubting that it's divine. You know, like, what's my other option? Oh, I'm being deceived by Satan. So it, it's flipping it on its head. And it sounds intellectually honest. It sounds like, Oh, you should look at it from both sides. Like, look at the atheistic side, look at the Christian side, see which, you know, which is better. Go through the whole Bible, look at these apologists who are saying it's completely historical and inerrant and in the Word of God, and look at these, you know, atheist apologists, for lack of a better word, who are saying, no, it's not, and weigh both evidences. But that's not what they mean. They mean read the Christian side and forget the other side because, you know, why are you going to listen to a liar? Why are you going to listen to a false prophet? Um, and I think, you know, as far as my church, you know, kind of pushing me to the side. And I will say my wife actually started, kept attending the church I started for a while um, without me there. Um, and then 
I started attending a different church because I was like, you're, you're like crushing my soul right now because these people are still your friends, but they want nothing to do with me. And, they, you know, right. um, is, you know, I think partially they, they, you know, I was asking them, like, why aren't you reading the books I read? Like, you, you're telling me that you want to understand my position. And I'm telling you, you know, read these books. Um, and they flat out said, we don't want to read anything written by a false prophet. And, and so I became the false prophet. Um, and so I'd say that that's, you know, one third of why the congregation stopped talking to me. I think the other two thirds were just really hurt. Um, you know, I was their spiritual father. Yeah, you betrayed them. Yeah, and, and they didn't know how to do it. Now, I was also a, a jerk on Facebook for the first six months of my deconversion. As, I, as I've found everybody or most people are right when they deconvert because you're kind of like angry that you've, you know, caught up in this lie. And you wasted your life. Um, and, and, you know, Facebook isn't the place to necessarily vent, but I did. Um, so Sunday is when my Christian friends were posting, you know, you know, joyous is the one who walks in the way of the Lord. I'd go to Numbers or Exodus and post like these terrible verses, you know, about God slaughtering everybody. And they're like, you're taking that out of context. Like, so are you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Like, that, that verse from the Psalm you posted has nothing to do with it being sunny while you're going to church. You know, like, <laughs> So if you can do it, why can't I? And they're like, you're just trying to lead people astray. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I am. Like, because as a Christian, I mean, I read my Bible, you know, front to back every single year. I had Bible reading plans. I had, you know, accountability partners, pastor groups, prayer groups. And you just don't see some of these things. You know, like when you're reading through Leviticus and you're like, wait, why do menstruating women need to leave town? Why are they unclean? And do dads really have to kill their kids? Right. You know, and uh, you just don't see that when you're in it and you're reading the Bible in a year. Right. You know, you know, cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias and everything else. Just like, oh, it must mean something that I don't know. Like, that's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. And I was I mean, I was a pretty well-trained theologian myself. I'm not I don't have a Ph.D. in theology, but I have a doctor of ministry and a master's in, you know, theology. And so, you know, but even I would be like, well, um, I don't know about these genocides in the book of Joshua, (laughs) but uh, I. I assume that God will explain them to me when I get to heaven because this is crazy. Right. Well, and I mean, I was bringing those up to my elders and I was like, look at my kids. Like, like, would it be just for, you know, the Hadley, which is the town over from Amherst, you know, Hadleyonians to come in and kill all my kids because, and they were like, yeah, they're like, it's probably better that those kids were murdered. This was a straight up answer I got. It was probably better that those kids were murdered than worshiped idols. Dennett. Daniel you know, Dennett. He talks a lot about yeah. He talks a lot about good tricks. Yeah. You know, and uh, and and Christianity has a lot of good tricks. You know, like when I when I came to it, it was you know I felt like crap because I was a drug addict, and uh, it's like oh yeah, you do feel like crap, but we can make you feel better. Um, you know, and as I've listened to some of your other guests, you know, it preys a lot on guilt, and people feel guilt and shame. It's like here's the solution to that. We all have it. So there's a good trick there. It's it's a it has a lot of really good tricks um, to multiply itself. It, it's also so squishy. I mean, when I deconverted. It, right now, even, it's really easy for me to get, I could get into a debate with, you know, the most reformed person in the world and probably take them down, I think, um, you know, at least in a debate format. Whether they deconvert or not, you know, th- that's different, but yeah, I think knows? I could answer their points and take them down. But I had Catholic friends who were like, yeah, you need to join the real church, and they're so squishy and slippery. You know, you, you, you mentioned the genocides to a reformed person, and they have to say, yeah, God predestined that. It has to be. Uh, it has to especially if the Bible is historical and accurate, like those people were literally killed. You talk to a Catholic and they're like, oh, that's allegorical. Those things didn't even really happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then, and they're like, look, the next page, it's you know, it says that God killed or Israel killed all the Canaanites, and then the next page, it's like the Canaanites are there. I'm like, yeah, that's a contradiction. That's part of what I'm talking about. They're like, no, 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 it's just it's it's metaphorical and and allegorical, and and so it's it's really just to teach us that this is what we need to do with sin in our life, but sin will still be there, just like the Canaanites on page two. And you're like, I have no apologetic response to you because you've just moved the goalposts. Well, and if people, you know, I often feel if, if people were approaching the Bible that way in mass, like if, if, the, if the 80% of American Christians approach the Bible that way, we would probably just be in a lot better place. Like I don't have – like if you love to read Homer's Odyssey once a year from cover to cover and learn lessons about endurance and – and overcoming challenges from Odysseus, you know, as he fights off the sea monsters or whatever, if that's your, you know, inspiration, then that's fine with me. It's just, but you're not going to go legislate your, your views based off of Odysseus in, right. in, in the state legislature, right? right? Like right. Now all men, when they pass sirens, must be tied up. Right, know? exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. So we just tie everybody up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was in a debate with my friend. He keeps quoting Aristotle. I'm like, look, Aristotle had some great things to say. He also thought the ceiling of the sky was 300 feet above them. Right. And so he, he also was just some, wrong like, about that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, he's just wrong. Um, so, you know, and same with the Bible. There's some good things. There are some things that are just wrong. Um, burning right. witches comes to mind. Stoning homosexuals. Stoning idolaters. You know, but stoning anyone. Killing, <laughs> killing anyone. <laughs> yeah. I'll give Sarah the last word. I think it's so easy to give up in that situation. And and I almost feel like culturally on both sides, there's this pull to give up. But I feel like something much greater can be found on the other side. And we're still discovering what that is. But like, you know, just our feet in the water, I can already tell that it's so much greater. There were times where I was like, I don't know how we're going to get through this. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know how we're going to come closer to each other, either one of us, Right. you know, I don't know how we're going to listen. I don't know how we're going to hear. We're still working through how to communicate with each other and, you know, what the umbrella of our marriage is now, because we are pretty opposite people, um, and have always been opposite but that umbrella of Christianity united us, and so now, it's, I mean, it's almost like dating again. We can discover all these new things about each other hmm. and, and kind of not just be like, well, God brings us together, but what is it about you that I really want to be here for? What is it about you that I really want to, to seek and to know and to find? Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The X-Files, a special production of the Life After God podcast. Thanks again to Nathan and Sarah Cartel for opening their lives a little bit to us and and allowing us to see the journey that they have been on. I hope you can uh, relate to aspects of their story and draw some strength and courage from it. I wish them uh, all the best in the their pursuits and and with their children uh, they have a a beautiful family and i'm I'm just happy that they are are doing as well as they are and and pressing on into this new chapter of their life a lot of cool things coming up on the life after god podcast more x-files episodes more interviews 
with interesting people coming up, and uh, I wish I could say more at this point, but uh, I do have some exciting things uh, just around the corner. So stay tuned for that. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or on Spreaker uh, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. If you have anything you'd like to share with us, uh, please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. To learn more about Life After God, you can visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. And all of our social media links are there. All the past episodes of the podcast are there. Uh, other Access to other information and, and resources are there. So please definitely check out the website. Uh, subscribe to the email newsletter. Follow us on Facebook. And stay in touch with all the things that we're doing. Um, if you found this story or any other story on this podcast to be beneficial to you, please share it with uh, people in your life, whether through social media or email or word of mouth. And uh, we just appreciate uh, you getting the word out. It's the only way that we really can uh, spread the word about this show. And if you found it to be beneficial in your life, I'm sure others will feel the same. Thank you so much for your support. My name is Ryan Bell, and this has been The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.